right, go ahead and grab a seat. We're going to get started this evening, everyone. If you are uh, visiting or this is the first time you've ever been here, just slip your hand up real fast. I know that people have family from out of town. Anybody visiting? Welcome. Happy that you guys are here. Glad that you're here. Um, Merry Christmas to everybody. We are uh, going to conclude our series in the book of uh, John. Uh, So go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. That's where we're going to be this evening. Um, Over the past few weeks leading up to Christmas, we've been in a series called The God Who Comes. And uh, what we've been doing is we've been looking at John 1 verse 1 through verse 18 uh, because John so captures the character and the heart behind a God who would come to his creation. There's mysterious words, there's beautiful words, and then there's just like, just a a complete explanation of this character of a God who would come. See, one of the reasons why we did this series was if you could imagine in your mind a God who needs correct behavior or a God who primarily needs you to think correctly or a God who needs some level of piety from you or obedience, that kind of God who needs those things stays at a distance. And I've found that that many people, they approach the Christian God as though he's that kind of God, when in reality, the story of Christmas tells us a pretty different story. See, a God who comes to you, a God who would become one of you, is ultimately a God who doesn't need something from you, but is a God who has something to give to you. A God who wants to win you rather than control you. So here's what we're going to do. Let's all stand up. Let's honor the text this evening, and let's read John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 14, some of the most beautiful words in this whole chapter. It says this in verse 14, The word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, speaking of John the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Verse 16. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's grab a seat. There's uh, so much in this passage that we could talk about this evening, but I want to focus on just two truths tonight. I want to put forth to you also that these two ideas are what set Christianity apart from every other religion that has ever existed. And these two truths are are this. uh, The accessibility of God, the accessibility of Jesus, and the generosity of God. The generosity of God. Of Jesus, Both of these, I think, set Jesus apart from every other way, every other guru, every other system, and in the language of the angel who came to Mary, these are the good news that will cause great joy for all of the people. The accessibility of God and the generosity of God. It has been said uh, before that the most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. 
When you think about God, what do you think about? It's going to define everything. And so here's what I want to do tonight. Um, I want to make sure that we are thinking about him correctly. There's no better season than Christmas to think correctly about this God who comes. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. Uh, First, the accessibility of God. This story, this passage in particular, tells us about the accessibility of God. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 14 says this. The word became flesh. The word became human and made his dwelling or made his home among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Now, if you remember from a few weeks back, uh, we, talk, we looked at this idea that Jesus is the word of God, or um, the Greek word for word there, the word became flesh, it's the logos of God. That's the Greek term, logos. And uh, what that means is that Jesus is the very expression of God. He's the exposure of God. Um, to get like a little bit more down to earth, the logos becoming a person, or the divine reason of God becoming a person, this divine word of God becoming a human, um, it, it means this. God's purposes for humanity, definitions of flourishing, and his will for humans are wrapped up in the person of Jesus. So if you want to know, like, what does God define as flourishing? What does God think about humanity? What does God want for all humans? Well, all of those desires, all of that will, all of that definition, because that's the logos of God, it's wrapped up in the person of Jesus. We just have to look at Jesus. So, so practically, here's what that means when you're reading about Jesus. When you're reading the, the, the stories of the, the four documentaries of Jesus, the four stories of the life of Jesus, practically, here's what this truth means. Um, he's the perfect representation of the Father, right? So when you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at the Father. It says that in verse 18. Look down at your Bibles. No one has ever seen God. Nobody. Up to this point in time, nobody's seen God, okay? But the one and only Son, this Logos, become flesh. This Jesus, who is himself God, is in the closest relationship with the Father. He's made the Father known. So if you wonder, like, what is the Father like? Sometimes we we pit them against each other and we think, okay, Jesus is the nice one, and he's always doing the things that we need him to do, right? And then there's the Father, who's a little bit irritable. I I like to think of, uh, when when, when I first became a Christian, I kind of had this conception of Jesus is the nice one, And then you have that father. He's kind of like a stressed out middle class dad. And you just never know if his team lost, what kind of mood he's going to be in, how the the day at work went. But this is is all wrong. What does it say? He he makes him known. You want to know what the father's like? Look at Jesus. But also, um, Jesus sets out the character of God with a level of finality. What this means is that all throughout the Bible, um, you, you basically have the Israelites getting glimpses of, of Yahweh, of God. And they are uh, getting glimpses of God. They're, God is doing different things, and he's acting differently in different times. And so oftentimes what we say when, we, when the objection that's raised when you say that Jesus makes the Father known is people go, oh, time out. Have you ever read the book of Joshua? That didn't seem very Jesus-like, right? Jesus lets himself be killed rather than kill. Like, have you, have you ever read that book? Or, or, or we, we come up with all these different things. Oh, you ever read the book of Job? Hmm? And what we have to do is we have to realize that, that Jesus, according to the book of Colossians, and according to this passage right here, he, is, he represents the Father with a level of finality. 
We don't raise up any other example and go, well, you know, I know Jesus is a nice guy. I know that he had some good things to say. I know that he's like a savior or whatever, but I don't know. God's kind of crazy. Have you ever read these books? We go, no. Have you ever read Jesus? Have you ever looked into his character? Have you ever looked into him? He is the exact representation of God, period. Thirdly, it means this. How Jesus lives, the way in which Jesus carries himself, he defines what it really means to be human. He's, he's perfectly human. Uh, imagine this. Maybe close your eyes to imagine this. Imagine that you, um, you're over here hanging out at the you know, Shehalem Parks and Rec Center, and you go to the basketball court, and there's like a group of 25-year-olds trying to play basketball. It's chaos. And uh, they've obviously never played basketball before. And, and, and imagine that these five-year-olds, they start making up their own game of how to play basketball. They're like, okay, so here's what you have to do. You have to run around that center circle four times, and then you get the ball, and you run down, and you throw it up in the bottom of this hoop thing. And that's how you score. You're like, that's not how you play basketball, but okay. Um, and, and then imagine this. Shout out, Maddie. Imagine that Damian Lillard shows up. Imagine C.J. McCollum show up. Kids don't know who they are. They're like, who are these guys? And they're like, well, okay, all of you, sit right here. We're going to show you how it's done. We're going to show you how you really play basketball. We're going to show you what this actually is supposed to look like, how you actually enjoy the game, right? This is what Jesus is doing. He's basically showing us what human life is supposed to look like. He's, show, he's giving us a new normal, right? So, so this, is, this is what this means. True human life looks like what Jesus had, we must have. Whenever you look at the life of Jesus, whatever he had, we need it too. But also, whatever Jesus went without, we can go without, without sacrificing our humanity. Oh, this is controversial. It is. Because a lot of times what we do today is we have our own definition of what it means to be human of what it means to be really alive. I need to have this thing to be really alive. I need to participate in this thing to be really alive. And we raise that definition above the logos. We raise that definition above the life of Jesus. And so we go, I have to be married or else it's not worth it. Hang on a second. What Jesus went without, we can go without, without sacrificing what it means to be human. He sets a definition of humanity. Augustine, he said this. This is just so good. God became human so that humans could become human again. God became human so that humans could become human again. Do you know what happens when every single person has their own definition of human flourishing that happens to conflict with other people's definitions of human flourishing? Chaos. And you, while you can't control what other people define, you can control what you define as human flourishing. And the life of Jesus gives us a complete and total definition of human flourishing. This reality is worth an entire evening of focus, a lifetime of wonder. But here are a few things to contemplate about this accessible God that we see in Jesus. See, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, God revealed himself in, in various ways. We have a word in the beginning. We have a spirit hovering over a, a, the deep, whatever that means, right? We have this mighty wind with Moses, right? We have um, a fire and a cloud with the Israelites. You have a still, small voice with Elijah. But at Christmas, God reveals himself as a baby. Why? Why a baby? 
why would God make himself a baby? It seems so counter uh, to what a God should, a mighty and powerful God, how a God, a God like that should reveal himself. Well, think about a baby. What are they? They're vulnerable. They're delicate. They're completely and totally helpless, right? They, a baby is at the mercy of whoever is with the baby, right? A baby is soft. So what does it mean that God would become a baby? It's it's logic made soft. It's the exposure of God become vulnerable at the mercy of. It's the word that has become killable. Think of what this level of accessibility means. That God would reveal himself in finality as a child. There's this um, famous story from back in the 70s, maybe some of you in your uh, you know, psychology classes, maybe you studied this. There was a woman one uh, late at night, really late at night in New York City. She was making her way um, to her apartment building after working her uh, shift at a local bar. And she, she makes it to her apartment building and she gets to her front door. And uh, she kind of, as she reaches for her key, she looks behind her and she sees that there's a man behind her coming closer to her. And she starts fumbling with her keys, trying to get it into the door. And uh, what ends up happening is this man uh, basically comes for her and she cries out, help, I can't get, you know, she couldn't unlock her door, help. And he takes his knife out and he begins to stab her. And she begins to cry out, help, help me, help me. And what happens is there's a little bit of debate, but but this is what we know for sure happened, um, that a couple lights begin to turn on in the apartment building above her. And a couple people begin to peek out and and see see what's going on. What's this commotion at 4 a.m.? And what we know is that nobody came down to help her. Why? Why? because they didn't want to get stabbed. (laughs) Because they didn't want to expose themselves to the danger that this woman was in, right? Jesus is the one who heard our cries while we were in danger, and he exposed himself to the same danger. He he heard our plight. He saw what was happening on earth. Instead Instead of staying at a distance, he actually got closer to it. He came down the front door and rescued us. Have you ever been helpless? Maybe that's where you're at even tonight. Have you ever cried out, is there anything that could save this situation? Jesus came for that very reason. He came to expose himself to the human condition. Sometimes my wife and I, we, uh, we talk about just how, how, um, how dangerous, it is, dangerous it is to be human. Isn't it dangerous? You just can't insulate yourself from loss. You just can't insulate yourself from grief. Uh, I, I was very close with my grandmother growing up, and she passed away a couple years ago, and I think about her often, almost weekly. Very, very close with her, and I, uh, she wrote me a bunch of letters. Apparently, while I was growing up, I, I didn't know about these, but I had lunch with my mom the other day, and she brought these letters to me and gave them to me. And I just spent a few minutes going through these letters, reading them, and just crying out of grief. Oh, I can't believe that she's gone. 
I can't believe that I'll never see her again. I had dinner at my grandpa's house the other night, and uh, I'm just thinking, what would this dinner be like if she was still here? <laughs> you just, I, some, sometimes the metaphor that my wife and I use is it's almost like the human condition is that you've been shot out of, an, uh, out of a cannon, and all of life you're soaring through the air, and you know that pain is coming. You know you're going to hit. You know it's going to hurt. And you just don't know when. God came into that condition. Why would God have to become human? Couldn't he have just snapped his fingers and saved us? Rescued us with just a word? Um, he, he probably could have, but I believe it would have violated humans' free choosing to be saved. That matters to God. But also think about this. If he had just snapped his fingers, not become human, then there would be no relationship. There'd be no relationship. You see, everybody who's ever gone through any level of pain, everybody who's ever suffered, really suffered, they, they know that Others who have gone through the same thing can understand them in a way that nobody else can. Right? What makes a good counselor? It's the counselor who, when you show up, they don't go, whoa, yeah, that sounds pretty bad. I don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's me counseling, okay? You don't want to come to me for counseling. But a good counselor is the, is the kind of person who, when you sit with them and you say, here it is. They go, I've been there. I know what that's like. Tim Keller, um, a pastor in New York, he, uh, he had a congregant who was a, uh, a doctor, a radiologist. And uh, this doctor, um, apparently when you go, I've never had this happen to me. Please, Lord, never let this happen to me. But I, apparently when you go to get um, any kind of like imaging done, uh, they sometimes pump you full of liquid that is this imaging liquid. It's like this... Um, uh, contrast liquid, so that when, it, when they do the imaging, they can see, oh, well, that's not normal, and that's normal, and they can kind of see the contrast of different things that are going on in, in your gut. And specifically, uh, this doctor remembered that uh, he would pump people full of this liquid, and apparently it's very painful, and they'd get on the table, and they would have to get all these specific shots, and so they're moving these people around, and, it, and apparently just, it hurts terribly. And so people are wincing, and he's just like, ah, oh, suck it up, and he's moving them around, and he's, he's like, we gotta get the shot. Do you wanna die, or we get the picture? Okay, so he's just he's moving these people around and shifting them around. Um, all, that that was until he had to have the same procedure done, and so he actually got pumped full of the same liquid, and he got on the table, and he realized just how much pain. And this 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 doctor said, "I never did that imaging the same way after that point. I never did it the same way because I knew the level of pain in which it caused, and so I was much more delicate, much more gentle." Jesus has gone through what you've gone through. Have you been let down? So is he. Have you been hated? So is he. Have you ever lost someone? So has he. Have you ever felt alone? So has he. See, he knows. Our God knows what it's like. And this is Jesus. He's gentle with us because he's gone through what we've gone through. He's patient with us because he's been on the table. He's felt the pain. He's been launched out of the cannon. He knows what it's like. Do you see how accessible he is? What other God is like this? Do you see how trustworthy he is because of this? 
So firstly, we have to realize that God became flesh. What does that do for us? Oh, we have an accessible God. But secondly, this passage reminds us that the message of Christmas is that God is generous. The generosity of God. Look down at your Bibles. Verse 16 says this. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Or in the ESV, it says it like this, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. What an amazing sentence. Um, Jim brought these out uh, last week in his message, but I just want to show you some of the most amazing verses about the value and the standing of a disciple of Jesus. I am a saint, according to Ephesians chapter 1. I have been adopted into the God's family, Ephesians 1 verse 5. I am redeemed and fully forgiven for all time, Colossians chapter 1. I am complete in Christ, Colossians chapter 2. I have access to God through the Holy Spirit. I've been chosen to bear fruit. I am God's dwelling place. I am a citizen of heaven. I am Christ's friend. Now, if you didn't snap a photo last week, now's the time. Get the phone out, snap a photo of these. These are very important truths about the value in the life of a disciple. Now, let me ask you a question as you're thinking about these. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are in Christ this evening, do you feel all of these every day? Do you wake up every day and you just think, yep, God's dwelling place, let's get out there. Do you think to yourself, I have complete access, not according to what I've done or haven't done, I have complete access. Do you you see this in your life? Do you sense this? Um, Now, whenever there's a gap between my lived experience and what the scriptures say to be true about me or true about what I'm entitled to, whenever there's a gap, I know that somewhere in my life, in my heart, I have settled for less than his fullness. That's the lack, nothing else. I have settled for less than his fullness. I want, to, I want you to see if you can um, place yourself in one of these cycles. Um, here's the cycle of religion. The cycle of religion is essentially this. It's fear of punishment. It's like, hey, hell's a pretty scary place. In fact, the Middle Ages are full of these crazy image, this crazy imagery about the place of hell, primarily to get obedience, right? So it's fear of punishment. Be careful. Watch out. You never know what, what God's going to think about what you've been up to. So then there's penance, or there's personal punishment, right? It's like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to, you know, say, you know, uh, a prayer over and over again. I got to go confess. I got to go, you know, get on my knees. I'm going to give some money to the church. Maybe I'll be generous. I'm going to go take communion. I'm going to do something to solve this issue. Uh, Then there's a level of reprieve. You're like, I feel great. This is awesome. You know why I know I'm good? Because I did that thing. I did that thing, and so I feel really good now. Um, But then eventually sin happens in your life again, and then the cycle starts all the way over again. Here's the cycle of grace. It starts with identity. All those things that we just listed out, those things that you just took a photo of, I know what's true about me, okay? So I have passion. (laughs) So I I live with this sense of purpose. I live with this sense of God's favor, his his glory over me. I remember we have an old friend, a missionary friend, who would always say, we live under friendly skies, Because of my identity, I understand who I am. I won't let my circumstances get in the way or conflict with what the scriptures have said to be true about me. So I have passion. But but just like everybody, temptation comes, right? There's always a a temptation to um, choose, you know, the opposite of what is true about you and to act accordingly, right? And so sometimes there's sin. 
then there's repentance. What is repentance? It's changing the way that I think and changing the way that I act. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it a change, Lord. I, I, have, I see that at the root of, of my behavior is not that I am just keep on acting out this way. At the root of my behavior is I really don't trust you. That's the sin. I really don't believe you. That's the sin. I really don't think that what you said to be true about me is actually true. That's the sin, right? So I change my belief, and then eventually that belief becomes my lifestyle. Can you find yourself in both of these? <laughs> I know I can. How you answer this question of which cycle you're in will tell you whether you see yourself as living from a place of lack constantly, trying to make up for your shortcomings, or if you live from a place of grace upon grace that has already been given. See, oftentimes, uh, the Christian life can feel like a game of shoots and ladders. You guys remember shoots and ladders? Uh, we would play this with some of the boys that Emily nannied, and it was maddening, right? Because there's no real strategy to this game. It's just like, oh, I went up a ladder. Oh, I went down a chute. Um, but basically what happens is you're like rolling a dice and you're taking your character and you're moving it up and if you land on the right ones, then you move up a level or several. If you land on the wrong one, you move down a level or several. And this is how sometimes we live the Christian life is we think to ourselves, okay, I'm really serious about the Lord. I am climbing that ladder. I'm doing great right now. And then sometimes we do something that's completely out of character, completely out of line according to the discipleship ethic of the New Testament and we go, ugh. I'm just back at the beginning. I'm horrible. I can't believe that I did that. Well, I, 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 could, I, would, I could never tell anybody about this thing that I've been doing. But what this passage tells us is that firstly, we're not defined by our lack or shortcomings, but we're defined by his fullness. Out of his fullness, you have received grace upon grace already given. When I became a Christian, I was 17 years old, and I found it very easy to imagine that my sin up to that point had been covered by my recent conversion to Christianity. I remember thinking, um, okay, being a Christian means that I humble myself to the point of saying, God, you're right, and I'll give myself to you. And I really did that. I really meant it. It was a really important thing uh, for me. And so, and so in my life, I was 17 years old, and I, and I gave myself to the Lord. And I remember thinking, well, I've done a lot of bad things. Uh, I've, done, I've, I've lied to people, I've cheated, I've done all sorts of things uh, to, to wreck your good world, God. So thanks be to God that there's Jesus dying on the cross, being resurrected, and that gets to count for my life. That's amazing. But what I didn't have when I was 17 years old was an understanding of what the Christian life, the long haul, all of life as a follower of Jesus, looked like practically in relation to grace and to sin. I, I somehow imbibed this, I don't know how, but I imbibed this message that when I got saved, forgiveness happened in that moment, but it was almost like I was given an oxygen tank of grace, and I had the ability to deplete that oxygen tank of grace with every sin. I had the ability to kind of use up all of the grace that God had given me at the beginning by my behavior each and every day. Or I kind of had this image of Jesus was on the cross, and with every sin, he was kind of wincing, like, oh, why'd you do that? Oh, I can't believe you did that. Oh, you really said that? And I thought that there would be a day where I would just finally do something and he would just go, forget it. Get off the cross and just go, I'm done with that guy. I'm sorry, but you're a lost cause. 
what I didn't understand was this passage. See, the passage says, out of his fullness, I have received grace upon grace. Do you see what this language means? It means that he doesn't apply grace to me based on the grace that I need, but based on the surplus that he has. He doesn't apply grace to me based on the need that I have, but based on the surplus, the fullness that he has in the heavenly realm. See, this passage doesn't say this. And based on the need of humanity, he applied heavenly blessing. It doesn't say that. And even if it had said that, that would be good, but it's even more glorious than that. His measure of outpouring of goodness and mercy and empowerment is founded in the abundance that he has, the surplus that he has, not the drain that you may be. Thank you. That's, I, it's, I think it's good news, too. I'm glad you think so, Chad. Um, see, here's the, here's the truth. He has more fullness than you can deplete. He has more grace than you can exhaust. Just when you thought that you had emptied the grace tank, you realize that his tank is overflowing. It's not just grace, it's grace upon grace. You're sandwiched in grace. His grace is overflowing on you. There is a banner over all of your life that just says this, forgiven. When God, if there, imagine this, there's a file cabinet with your file in it. I know, Bruce Almighty or whatever. There's, a, there's a, a, a file cabinet, and it has your name on it. And when God looks at that, you know what it just says on it? Forgiven. Stamped. Over your entire life. No matter what you choose from this point uh, to do with your life, he has applied his blood to you. So you are covered. You're covered by his blood. Right? This is what this passage is saying. Grace is coming from behind you, and grace is in front of you. You're, you're, you're coming from a place of grace, and you're going to a place of grace. Now, what does grace actually mean? You're like, grace, grace, grace. What, do you, what, do you, what does it actually mean? Have you ever talked about something so much that you end up forgetting what the thing even means? Grace does two things. Grace covers, and it empowers. Grace covers, and it empowers Whenever I talk with somebody who's struggling with this concept of, um, is all of my sin covered or just part of my, what, what is covered? Whenever I talk with somebody who has that problem, has that issue, um, I, I tell them this. I say, do you know that you could have a hundred sinful patterns of thinking in your life? A hundred different uh, behavior, uh, b- behaviors that are completely out of line with God's vision for flourishing. You could have a hundred of those things going on and God could cover 99 of those while he just brings one to the surface and out of love disciples you in that one thing. That's grace. What does grace do? It covers us. It covers, it covers the things that need to be covered. But grace wasn't given only to cover. It was given to make a new creation. It was given to make a new creation. You you guys realize that nothing has been created between Genesis 1 and Jesus. There was nothing new that was created between Genesis 1 and Jesus. But when Jesus came, all of a sudden, new creation began taking place all around. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... The new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Now, some of you guys know this. Uh, but in Greek, it, it's, it's this literal. It's, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, creation. That's how it reads. If anyone is in Christ, creation. See, for me, there was a guy named Alex before Christ. 
And now there's an entirely new Alex since Christ, an Alex that has never existed before. There's a you that has never existed before when you got in Christ. This is salvation. This is what it means to be born again. It's why we even use that metaphor of being born again, right? Because you get a whole new life. You're seen in a whole new way, right? Grace intends to make you into a new creation. It's why it's grace upon grace already given, because God progressively wants to make you, conform you into the image of his son. Um, Grace intends to make you into a new creation. God's generosity is the primary tool that he uses to make a new person. It's the primary method he uses to actually make someone new. I think many of us, we, um, we know how to be grateful to have a wrong covered. Have you ever been forgiven by somebody and they just say, you know what, I'm just gonna let it go. I forgive you. We're like, oh, wow, that feels good. Thank you so much to have a wrong covered. But real repentance is saying, thank you for covering me, God, but also I say yes to your fullness, changing me from deep down. And it is that yes that we give in repentance where grace then empowers a radical new creation level change. It's every day saying yes to his grace. You may be asking yourself, um, okay, so if, if all of my life there's just a stamp over it that just says forgiven, if all of my life there's just a grace over my life, then why repent? Why repent? Uh, some of us, we treat repentance like this. You don't have God's grace unless you repent, right? It's like, you gotta, you gotta repent before you're getting this. But the scriptures are quite clear that when you are in Christ, then all of the blood of Jesus is applied to all of your life. So repentance doesn't give you access to grace. What repentance does is it, it gets you to a place where you can recognize grace applied to yourself in a tangible way. You go, oh, You want to change me. You don't want to just cover me. You want to change me. And so my repentance, my changing of the way that I think, my turning around and turning to you and and coming to you and say, okay, I'll give you my yes. Have your way with my life, Lord. What you're doing is you're getting grace tangibly in your life to such a degree where he then becomes Lord again. And when he becomes Lord again, he's going to make you like his son Jesus. That's, that, that's why we repent. That's why we change. C.S. Lewis, uh, he said this when thinking about people's feelings approaching God and finding that they're not just covered, but there's a real fullness that wants to remake you. He, he imagined this. I never expected to be a saint. I only wanted to be a decent, ordinary chap. And we imagine, when we say this, that we are being humble. But this is the fatal mistake. Imagine that you're a living house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. 
To shrink back from the plan is not humility. It is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania. It is obedience. It's repentance. See, the most difficult part of repentance isn't the recognition of wrongdoing. It's the second part, saying yes to his fullness, the fullness of God remodeling the places in you that you were content to keep until you really do look like Jesus. That's repentance. It's I know that you cover me. Oh, but you are rebuilding me. This is what it means to submit yourself to fullness. The message of many other religions is this. Submit yourself to the rules. Submit yourself to this creed, to the small handful of edicts that we have. Submit yourself to them. But Jesus is so different. It's submit yourself to his fullness. Submit yourself to his grandness. Submit yourself to matching his dreams for you. Submit yourself to his generosity. That's the invitation of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. Religion says, come, fit into this plan. We have a plan here for you. Jesus says, let all of my fullness fit into you. Let all of my fullness get into you. And when I get inside you, a generosity of life will be the result. You're gonna get generous. Why spend time with those who have less than you? Why give away your money? Why give away yourself in service? Don't you see what he's done for you? Don't you see the accessibility that he's given to himself? Don't you see the generosity out of his fullness, grace upon grace? He became approachable so that we might receive his generosity. And that is why we celebrate Christmas. Let's all stand.